On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have gathered here this morning because you have made us thirsty. You have revealed to us your holiness and your majesty. You've shown us the depth of our sin and that infinite separation that we have brought upon ourselves. And then you've shown us Christ. And that's why we're here. To see him. To know him. To come and to drink deeply that we might live. By your grace, Father, we ask that you would be gracious with us, a sinful people, by gathering, communing, guiding, and directing so that we might be a holy people, living lives that bring you honor and glory this day and every day until Christ comes again in glory. Bless us this hour, I pray, with your Holy Spirit. Convict our hearts, open our ears, give us the ability to hear you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open up to chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. By His grace this morning, we will be closing this most magnificent teaching, it does not, the dialogue does not end here, it actually carries on, the teaching from the temple carries on into chapter 8, but we're going to see here some decisions that are being made and some responses to our Lord's teaching that uh, we don't want to be our responses. The title of the sermon is A Better Response, and we want to hear the truth of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers through the gospel of grace, and we want to respond to it correctly. I do, I know you do. Standing up for truth in the midst of a generation that is bathed in lies is a very difficult thing for us today. Discerning truth and then standing up for it. I'm not talking about the truths that you're hearing our politicians say or your insurance salesman. I'm talking about fundamental truths to the basic questions of life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Or maybe the greatest lie that perpetuates our time now that there is no God. All of you at some point in your life have been pressured by external forces to comply with your sin to engage in a lie. It might have been, for some of you, a friend at school that got you to help them or you cheat on an exam. Maybe a a colleague at work that compelled you to fudge some numbers on a particular project. Maybe it was your own spouse who wanted to spend time with you and convinced you to call in sick when you were perfectly healthy. Maybe your desire to be liked and accepted compelled you to remain silent when you should have spoken up those dialogues that come up about 
the right to the unborn child or the sanctity of marriage or maybe the person of Jesus Christ, when those are being discussed, we go quiet. What will enable you to speak the truth in love every time you have a chance? What will enable you to hear Jesus Christ speak to you in love and not be deceived or confused by the schemes of Satan and the world and your own flesh? What will enable you to overcome this in the midst of persecution, potential humiliation? From the passage today, I want us to look at how those who heard this great gospel truth of Christ saying, come to me and drink and I will give you life. I want to hear how they responded to truth itself. And then I want to look at how we ought to respond. What is the right response for the body of Christ? And what is the right response to those who don't know Christ? And so as we close this final section, this chapter, I want to look at three things. One, I want to look at the living water being revealed here. We've already touched on it in John chapter 4, but now we understand what this water is and what it can do. Secondly, I want to look at the bad debate that, that follows that. And then third, I want to look at a better response, how we should respond, how God desires us to respond. So the living water, a bad debate, and a better response. Let's look at the living water revealed first. Look at verses 37 and 38 with me. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, you immediately are thinking again, I pray, John chapter 4, Samaritan woman at the well, because Christ has already identified himself as the Messiah, and he's already said, if you drink the water, the living water that I offer, you will never thirst again. And so he comes back, John the Apostle comes back to this teaching again in John chapter 7, and we figure out not only what that water is, but the effect it's supposed to have on you. A few days prior to this crying out in the temple, Jesus had come into Jerusalem and he had gone into the temple and he began to teach in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. You also might know that as the Feast of Booths. It is my favorite feast, the Feast of Booths. I mean that sincerely. There's great reason for it. The Feast of Booths was the most extravagant of all the feasts. I mean, it was, it was the time of celebration and joy over what God had done, the provision of the land, the sustaining them in the desert. In fact, in Numbers chapter 29, the sacrifices are so extreme, it makes the other feasts pale in comparison. On the first day, Numbers 29 They are told to present an aroma pleasing to the Lord, a food offering, listen to this, consisting of a burnt offering of 13 young bulls, 2 rams, and 14 male lambs, all without defect. Second day, 12 young bulls, 2 rams, and 14 male lambs, all without defect. Third day, 11 bulls, 2 rams, and 14 lambs, a year old without defect, and so on for seven consecutive days. Incredible sacrifice to the Lord, unmatched. In addition to this, every morning of those seven days, the priest would, would lead a procession from the temple to the pool of Siloam, and he would take a golden picture, and he would take water into that picture, and then he would lead this procession back to the altar, and he would take the pitcher of water, and he would take the wine of the sacrifice, and he would pour them together into these two bowls that were perforated, and they would come down into the altar, 
It was a water sacrifice and a water ceremony. And that particular part was to remind them of how the rock at Meribah that Moses struck provided their forefathers with water to sustain them in the desert, to keep them alive. And they're making this connection between this water ceremony during the Feast of Tabernacle and Moses doing this great work by God's grace in the desert to keep them alive. And so Jesus, being the perfect teacher, he capitalizes on this moment. And in this last day of this great feast, he wants them to see that the symbolism of all the rams and all the bulls and all the lambs that are, that are killed and the water ceremony, he wants them to see that all those sacrifices are pointing to him because he's the sacrifice. And he wants them to see that that water that they are so pleased to have and celebrate over is the living spirit that he promises to give. And so what does he do? Look at verse 37. He stands up. And that's important because when a teacher taught, he would usually sit and the disciples would sit down. But Jesus wants everyone to hear what he's going to say. And so he stands up. Now you've got to imagine, it's the, the last day of the great feast. The, ta- the, the, um, the temple is packed with people, probably thousands. And Christ stands up with the multitudes listening and he cries out. He shouts out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Christ is saying, if my heavenly Father has given you a thirst, if my heavenly Father has granted you a desire for righteousness, if he has drawn you to me, Christ has then come and drink and drink deeply. Because he's saying, by coming to me and believing in me, and that's what he means, he says, come and drink. He's saying, by coming to me and believing in me, not only will you have life, I will, I will save you now, and you'll be saved for eternity. That means eternal life with me and my Father and the Holy Spirit. He says, not only that, but I will make you a blessing to others. From your heart, from your life, rivers of living water will flow out. And it's an extraordinary statement, and it's meant to be extreme. Here we are, dead in our sins and transgressions, and Christ says, I'm going to make you alive, but I'm not just going to save you. I'm going to make you a radical, bold blessing to the world as the Holy Spirit goes from you and blesses abundantly. Christ is saying, if you come to me, Christ is saying, if you turn, you'll become a people so satisfied in Jesus so radically transformed by God's grace from the inside out that it will be impossible for you not to be a river of living water. You will will be a contagious element of the gospel. How glorious is that? You will not, not be able to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace. You will not be able to go to work and not emanate the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You will be known as a Christian. Glorious. During the wilderness wanderings, this all was tied into it. The Israelites were dying in the desert. And so Christ, God the Father, enabled Moses to strike the rock at Meribah and provide water that he might save them. But it wasn't just to maintain the lives of those in the desert. We know that most of those people never entered the promised land. But what did he do? He sustained them with water that they might have a generation a new generation who would come into the promised land and who would become God's people. And Christ has come into this barren place, into this desert that's contaminated and dead in sin. And he's made people like you and me alive. By his Holy Spirit, he's come and he's breathed life into us. 
And he's done that not only to bring us into his presence now and forever, but that we might, we might go from this place into our homes and into our workplace and into our neighborhoods, and we might become those rivers of living water as we testify to the goodness of Christ and the gospel of grace, as we call people to repent and to believe and to follow Jesus. This hope of the gospel that is supposed to go out from us went out to you at some point. Somebody who was saved by grace shared the gospel with you. Somebody was a river of living water to you and your ears heard of God and your ears understood from the word of God the magnitude of your sin and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you repented and you believed. During this morning ceremony, after they would have the water and they would say the blessing, every single day now, they did this for seven consecutive days, they would blow three times on the shofar. You know what the shofar is? Shofar is that glorious ram horn they would blow out. And after they would do that, the people would sing. Now listen closely. This is incredible. They would sing Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They would sing that aloud. And so Jesus Christ, after this glorious singing, comes up and he reveals himself as the one who will draw salvation from the well. This teaching is so appropriate. If you were listening closely, when Pastor Kurt was reading the call to worship, it was Isaiah 12, and Christ identifies himself, one, as the the Holy One of Israel who's in their midst and the one who will give them living water. He's bringing this prophecy. Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. Verse 5, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That's Christ. He's standing there. They were just singing about him. And he's right there, right before them, in their midst. He's fulfilling this prophecy. And every other prophecy, Jesus Christ is fulfilling. They were singing this year after year after year, not even knowing what they're to be looking for. And here Christ is before them, offering them his life for theirs, saying, I will be the sacrifice. And if you come to me and if you drink and if you believe, I will bring to you, I will give to you living water, the Holy Spirit of God to dwell in you. John gives us a really interesting chronological note here. Look at verse 39 that the work of the Holy Spirit would come after the work of Christ on the cross. Look at verse 39 now. This he said, Jesus, about the Spirit, whom those those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Once Jesus completed the work on the cross, and he had to complete that first, He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Counselor. I'm going to send the Comforter. And He's going to come and He's going to dwell in you. And He will sanctify you and make you holy and you will become a blessing to many others. In Acts chapter 1, just before our Lord ascends into heaven, at the end of His 40 days, He's going to ascend and He says to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
At this Feast of Tabernacle, the Spirit had not yet been given because Calvary must precede Pentecost. Christ had to go to the cross first. He had to complete the work of redemption first before He could send the Holy Spirit. Because in order for the Holy Spirit to come and and come and dwell in you and forgive you and make you holy, you, me, we have to have a sacrifice for our sins. The Holy Spirit of God can come in and dwell in us. Jesus was not yet glorified at this point, but He would be in a matter of months. He would be crucified. He would die on the behalf of a sinful people. And those who repent and believe would not only have him, they would have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Such an extraordinary thought that the third person of the Holy Triune God dwells in you. Amazing. I think we should just stop and sing right now. And that's an amazing thought that God dwells in you. This teaching is so glorious. It's so perfectly timed by Jesus Christ speaking to the multitudes at that moment. They had just finished the seven days of this great feast of tabernacles. Bulls and rams and lambs slaughtered day after day and water coming into the altar. And he stands up and says, I am that sacrifice and I can give you the water. Come, he says, and drink. Come and believe. Now you would think, I mean, they knew their own culture. They knew their own traditions. They knew Isaiah 12. They knew the ceremony. They knew it was all pointing to the Messiah. You would think that their response would be a universal, amen, let us drink. But sin, as you know, has many qualities to it, one of which is deception. And so they heard the Christ fulfill Isaiah 12. They heard the Christ say, I can give you living water, and they did not believe. Let's look at our second point, a bad debate. This is a wrong response to the declaration of the gospel of grace by Jesus himself. A bad debate ensues, verses 40. I'm going to read 40 through 44. When they heard these words, this is the crowd, they heard Jesus speaking. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Verse 43, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Jesus Christ, in the last day of this great feast, he stands up and he declares himself to be the Messiah. And he says to them, if you come to me and if you drink, I will save you and I will bring the living water, the Holy Spirit to you and from you rivers of living water will come. You'll be a blessing to the nations. It was a bold proclamation to the end of centuries of tradition. I mean, they they were ready for the ceremony to end. Many of the pilgrims were ready to go home. And then this man stands up. This was not part of the tradition. This was not part of the ceremony. This was new. This was different. And some would say it it was a bit strange that Jesus was calling all the attention, and he was, to himself. He declares himself to be the fulfillment of the feast. I imagine he would have said, you just had a chance to sing Isaiah 12, 3. That verse that you had a chance to sing is about me. All the sacrifices you've seen, they're about me. This water ceremony, it's about me and what I can give you, the Holy Spirit. They did not receive it as such. 
Some of them argued he's the great prophet. We know that. He's talking about the prophet that Mosea prophesied to, Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. Now, they had already made this, remember? When Jesus had fed the 5,000, they were already making this connection. Some were saying, he's the prophet because he's doing stuff like Moses. I mean, Moses was the one who fed them in the, in the desert, the manna. And now they're making that same connection. Moses was the one who fed them with the water, and he's making the water connection. He must be the prophet. He was. They were right, and they were totally wrong. Others said, it's the Christ. Now, notice I want you to say, it does not say they believe he is the Christ, They merely said, verse 41, this is the Christ. They were saying it. They were engaged in a public debate. They were arguing amongst themselves who this man is. They draw another right conclusion, but for all the wrong reasons. Certainly giving no dignity if if this indeed were the prophet or if it were the Christ. They wouldn't be standing there debating. They'd be on their knees. Still others engage in the dialogue and say, no, he can't be the Christ because he's from Galilee. Look at verse 41. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? The implication being no. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was was born? And so we get another glorious truth falling out of scripture. They're right again. They're right again. Jesus did come from Bethlehem. He did come from the line of David. He did come born of the Virgin Mary. So they're right. So here you have, at the end of Micah 5, 2, we're told this, but you, O Bethlehem, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, listen to this, from ancient of days. And you say, wait a minute, Jesus is the ancient of days. Yes. Jesus is the Holy One of Israel of Isaiah 12, 3. Jesus is the great prophet of Deuteronomy 18. They're right on all these points. The Messiah is standing right before them and he's crying out to them, come to me. And they're saying, he is the prophet. He is the Christ. He must have been born in Bethlehem if he is to be the Christ. They're right and they're all wrong. They're all wrong. Why are they wrong? Why are they wrong? What does it lead to? We'll get to this next week. In chapter 8, do they fall down and worship? Do they praise him? No. They still want to arrest him. They're, They're right on all their answers, and they're completely wrong because their hearts are wrong. Their approach is wrong. He is the great prophet of whom Moses spoke. He is the Christ of whom the prophets had declared. He was indeed born of the offspring of David in the town of Bethlehem. True, true, true. But this crowd, they were not interested in knowing Jesus as God. They wanted to label him. They wanted to put an identity on him. The people wanted to identify him as someone, a prophet, the Christ, a healer, a a demon-possessed man, a miracle worker, someone. As we read this, though, we know who he is. He's the Son of God. He's God. So they're, they're, they're debating his identity, and they're, they're debating the identity of the one who created them, the one who is sustaining them, and the one who's going to judge them. And they're debating who he is. How amazing if God had spoken to them out of a whirlwind as he did Job in chapter 38. You remember that? When Job goes 37 chapters 
wanting counsel, wanting to get in a court of law with God, walking right up to that line. God says in verse chapter 38, verse 2 of Job, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And then he says, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, Job, and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? And who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels sounded for joy? Job, tell me. Their mixed response is the height of arrogance. Sinful man, sinful fallen man debating who God is. He's the almighty creator. His identity is set and known. And yet they say, prophet, Christ, miracle worker, demon, blasphemer, someone we need to arrest and someone we need to kill. The great 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones Many of you have read his stuff. Maybe you've heard his sermons. They're online. During his lifetime, he refused to debate anyone on God. He wouldn't debate atheists and he wouldn't debate other religious leaders. This is what he said. God is not to be debated. God is not a subject for debate because he is who he is. Listen to this, saints. He said, we should never allow debate Because God is not a kind of philosophical X or concept. We believe in the almighty, the glorious, the living God, not a philosophical proposition. You know where he gets that? He got it from Exodus chapter 3, when Moses encounters God at the burning bush. Let me read this to you, and I want you to contemplate the degree to which we know God The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, this is verse 3 of Exodus 3, I will go over and I will see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Curiosity, but not reverence. Look at verse 4, if you, you don't have it open. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called To him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And he said, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he's standing in the temple amongst all the people. They should have been hiding their face instead of debating who he is. The attitude of our heart, I pray, my beloved, is more like Moses and not like these people. Idle curiosity, debating God, speculative, foolish um, statements made. It should be like that of Moses, falling down, hearing God speak to us. We're supposed to respond to God in worship. We're supposed to respond to God in obedience. We're supposed to respond to God by wanting to love God more. Paul makes this clear in Romans 1. They knew. Everyone knows. 
Romans chapter 1, for what can be known about God is plain to man because God has made it plain to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So what? So they are without excuse. We are without excuse. That crowd in the temple on the the Feast of Tabernacles, they were without excuse. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the living God, their creator, is standing right in front of them to debate or deny God. It's grievous. It's grievous, my beloved, when we debate the identity of people. You you all know in the history of our own country, there was a pseudo-scientific theory to try to explain slavery. And they came up with this idea that that black people were somehow less human than white people. It's grotesque. That's man changing the identity of another man. Something very similar in the 1930s, Adolf Hitler, Germany. He argued that the Jews were not fully human. They were untermensches. They were less than human. They were below human. I mean, we hear these things and we recoil, rightly so. How much more should we recoil when man, sinful man, stands in the judgment of the living God? How much more? I imagine that the angels on that day, at that feast, the angels were listening to men debate who Christ is. Prophet. The Messiah. Observing them engage in this hateful dialogue instead of worshiping. These are the same angels. When they gaze upon Christ, have to cover their eyes with their wings. Cannot look upon the glories of God. And the glory of God is manifest there in the temple. But this was not the response of fallen man. Fallen man does not respond to worship in God unless God makes that man alive. This is exactly what we do. This is what the culture does. This is what the world does. Who is God? Who is God? And we get into these debates and these dialogues instead of worship. God has revealed himself clearly in creation. And he's revealed himself specifically in his word. Our right response to hearing God speak is not debate. It's not idle curiosity. It's not to see why that bush is burning and not being burned up. It is to worship him. It is to come before him and fall down on our faces and cry out for mercy and receive his grace. It's to know him. It's to love him. That's the right response to hearing God speak. So we've seen this offer that Jesus brings to fallen man. He says, I'm the Savior. If you come and you drink, I will give you the Holy Spirit. We see that offer here. And then we see the the horrible confusion and the sinful dialogue that proceeded from that. We want a better response, don't we? I want you to have a better response to to the words of Jesus Christ of the sermon this morning than that crowd did. Let's look at the last point. What is the better response to this? It's probably late afternoon in the temple. I imagine some of the pilgrims who had come from a long distance when the last part of the ceremony was over, they probably started to head home. The Sanhedrin, if you remember, they had gathered. The Sanhedrin is the ruling 
religious elite, and they had sent out, remember the officers? They sent out the officers in verse 39 to go and arrest Jesus. And so they've gathered. Some of the people are heading away. The officers were sent out to get Jesus and bring him back to the Sanhedrin so he could be arrested and by their desires, what? Put to death. They already wanted to kill him. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? They said, why didn't you bring Jesus? They told him, go out and arrest him, and they didn't do it. Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The ESV has an exclamation point. I think that's appropriate. No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The officers offer a much better response than the crowd. These were Levites. They were in charge of the regulations, security of the temple. They were like temple police, some of them. And they were sent out like police to go and arrest this troublemaker. But they come back without him. And they know coming back without Jesus was going to require severe punishment. They were disobeying the Sanhedrin. They were disobeying the very orders they were given. And then when they respond, I found this amazing. They didn't make up any excuses. They didn't say, oh, we tried to get to him, but the crowd pressed us away. We were going to get to him, but we were afraid that we would be overtaken by the crowd. By God's grace, they actually confess something so extraordinary. They say with their mouth, look at verse 46 again. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. It literally says in the Greek, never has a man spoken in this way. Never. What was it? How did Jesus speak that compelled these men men, to disobey their authorities and not arrest him? What was it? What was it that convinced them better to return empty-handed and come under severe punishment by the Sanhedrin than to take that man in? The simple answer is Jesus spoke as God because he is God. He spoke as God. And I do not believe that you can hear God speak and then want to arrest God at the same time. He spoke. He spoke with authority and humility. He spoke with power and with grace. In other words, he combined his divine office, his authority, his majesty, his glory, his power, his justice. He combined that divine office with the sacrificial man that he is, with grace and mercy and love and humility. And that's why he called them to come to him, that they might be be saved. No one spoke like Jesus. No one can speak like Jesus. An enigma would be an understatement. When the man who is fully man and fully God speaks, these men knew, don't touch him. Don't touch him. They they came very close to saying this. He spoke in a supernatural way as though sent by God, but they didn't dare say that. I mean, they knew they were going to be punished, but why make the situation worse? 
Verse 44, no one laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour had not come. In other words, God had supernaturally intervened and he made those men unable, listen closely, they were unable to execute the sin they had been commanded to do. The Sanhedrin said, go arrest Jesus. That is a sin. Would you not agree? And God supernaturally made them unable to arrest and execute an innocent man. I would argue, my beloved, that this is the better response that we want as well. Rather than spending time, which we do, spending so much time debating who Christ is, debating the Word of God, how glorious for us to hear the Word of God and turn away from sin. How glorious. How glorious if those of us saved by grace hear Him and then respond by the power of the Holy Spirit to Him. That means... Every time we open our Bible, every time you come to hear a sermon preached, every time you hear the Word being taught, every time God speaks to you with the Word, what do you do? You forsake the authority of the flesh that tells you, don't listen, don't do. You forsake the authority of the flesh. You forsake the temptation to sin. And you submit. I know that's a tough word in our culture today. You submit when you hear God. We hear Jesus speak to us with all the authority of heaven and all the mercy and grace of the crucified Christ. We hear that. We hear Jesus speak to us as no other man and and by his grace out of our love for him and our love for the Father and our love for the Holy Spirit, we follow him. We don't arrest him. We follow him. We don't ignore him. We listen to him. We don't reject the word. We submit to the word. We become not merely hearers of the word, but as James said, what? We become doers of the word. How glorious if we could say to that sinful, fleshly authority that moves us in horrible places, how glorious if we can say to that flesh, I cannot I cannot lie. I cannot continue hating my brother. I cannot continue to forsake the very work that God has called me to do. I cannot submit any longer the temptation of my flesh, the willful, unrepentant sin. I cannot. Why? Because I've heard Christ speak, and he speaks like no other man. How glorious if God does a work like that in us, that we become like these officers unable to sin because we've heard the living God. The Pharisees answered, look at verse 47, they were not pleased. You have also been deceived, they said. Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? It's a nice self-exalting statement. He said, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So what do they do? Typical pharisaical fashion. Typical religious response. They lift themselves up and they put everybody else down. They put the officers down and they say to the crowd, you kidding me? They said, the crowd, we know the law. They said, none of the Pharisees believe this and we're the ones that know. And if anybody should know, we should know. If he's the Christ, we would know and we'd tell you. They're saying, don't listen to the country rabble. 
to ignorant masses. They don't know the law. They only believe foolishly. And the Pharisees are saying to the officers, and obviously you've been duped too. They dismiss the testimony of the officers. They dismiss the murmuring in the crowd. He's the Christ. He's the prophet. They dismiss it all. And they call them accursed instead. Now this behavior, this self-exalting behavior that compels them to reject truth, it's bad enough when they were talking to the officers, but then they turn on Nicodemus. And you remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3. He was identified as what? As the teacher of Israel. He wasn't just any normal Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Look at what they do to him. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, said, verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Remember, they had already tried Jesus in their minds. They were going to arrest him and have him killed before they ever brought him in their presence. Verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And they find themselves, the Pharisees, doubly condemned. Nicodemus is compelled, no doubt by the Spirit of God, and many of the commentators said he likely already was saved. He likely already knew Christ. We don't know that. But by standing up and becoming a sympathizer of this rebel who they wanted to kill in the midst of the Sanhedrin, he put himself out there. And he says to them, the very law that you say you know, you are now violating. The very law that you say that you love and stand for, you are breaking. Moses gave this charge, listen closely, to the judges of Israel. That would be the Sanhedrin. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Moses said, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. So when Nicodemus, is, when he challenges the Pharisees, saying essentially, you're breaking your own laws. Even the Romans, we know this from the book of Acts, even the Romans, the despised Romans, even they had a means by which someone could come and make a case for themselves. We know that. The book of Acts teaches us that. And yet here, the, here are the judges of Israel forsaking their own laws. They accursed the people saying they don't know the law. They stand up righteous and say we do know the law and they break it. Why? They have two choices and they know this. They either believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he came to die to give them living water or what? Or they kill him. Or they kill him. They have no defense. So what do they do? They attack. This is what the religious mind does, does it not? If you have no excuse, if you have no answer, what must you do? You must attack. And so they go on the attack. They're talking to Nicodemus now. This is not a rookie Pharisee who just come, came in. He's in his first year in the Sanhedrin. This is Nicodemus. This is the great teacher of Israel. They attack his motives and they attack his knowledge. Look what they say to him. Are you from Galilee too? You know what they're saying. Are you, are you following Jesus too? Are you a disciple too? Are you one of his too? Now, to be called a Galilean was bad enough. But the implication is that Nicodemus 
had aligned himself with this rebel, with this blaspheme. And then they attack his knowledge. They say to him, does any prophet come out of Galilee? And it's an amazing statement. For those of you who know your Old Testament, it's an amazing statement. They say, search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. Notice again, they do not address Nicodemus' accusation. They do not go and search the law. They could have. Instead, they come at him, they attack him, they attack his motivation, and they attack his knowledge of the law, and in their attack, they're actually wrong. You know some prophets that came from Galilee. You know one for sure because the Bible tells us Jonah, he came from Galilee. Nahum came from Galilee. Elijah likely came from Galilee. Even Hosea, most think, came from Galilee. But even if you didn't know that, the Pharisees knew. Isaiah chapter 9, such an extraordinary passage. Isaiah chapter 9 says the Messiah will come out of Galilee, and he will be a great light. Most of you know this from Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, says, In the future, this is the prophet Isaiah now writing, 800 years before Jesus. In the future, the Lord will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. Why? Verse 2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a great light has dawned. Who is that light? That light is Christ. Their pride and their hatred led them to violate their own laws. Sinning against God, they sinned against God, they sinned against the crowd, they sinned against the officers, they sinned against Nicodemus, and now they're going to sin against Christ himself. I'm so thankful that Nicodemus, like the officers, he responded correctly. By taking a stand and fighting for Christ and justice for Christ, He made himself an outsider. He made himself a sympathizer. And if he's not already saved, he's taking one step closer to being saved by grace through faith in Christ. If he's not already saved, I think he was too. My beloved, our ability to overcome the temptation of sin and to stand up in times like this in the face of persecution, in the midst of a hostile work environment, in the midst of a group of friends that hate Jesus, in the midst of your neighbors who do not believe in Christ, your ability to do that in the Holy Spirit will be your ability to see Christ clearly, to see Him and to know Him. If you you just see Jesus as some good teacher, some moral leader, if you just hear Him as, as some religious figure, then in the, midst of, in the midst of persecution or potential humiliation, you will not stand up for truth. You will not. But if you hear Jesus speak to you through the word of God like no other man, and if you hear Christ talk to you, and you know him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will stand up for truth. You'll stand up for justice. You will become bold in places where you thought, I could never speak like this. The Holy Spirit himself will speak through you, and you will testify to truth, and you will testify to Christ, and you will say things you would never, ever say otherwise. But you cannot do that 
If Christ is nothing more than a, than a good moral teacher or an old religious leader of some kind, you must know Him. You must know Him as your Lord. And the Holy Spirit must dwell in you. And you must hear Him in order for this to be a reality, in order for you to be like Nicodemus. You must know this Christ gave His life for you. You must know that He took the cross for you. You must know that he paid your debt in full for you. And in knowing that, be set completely free. There's so much freedom that comes in the cross of Christ. Because your identity then is not wrapped up in your work or your marriage or your children or your looks or your clothes or your car. All that goes away. You are bound by the blood of Christ in the love of the cross. And you are completely changed. And Nicodemus was changed that he could stand up amongst his peers, amongst a group that had a great deal of pressure, religious pressure, and say, that's not right. That's not right. It means, my beloved, that you'll be able to, in the moment of temptation, when sin is knocking at the door, if you hear Christ and you know Christ, you'll be able to say no to that temptation You'll be able to mortify that temptation before it leads to the sin. And if you do stumble and fall by God's grace, you'll be able to mortify that sin, repent of it, and say, no more. I have heard my Lord speak. I know who he is. I know his glory, and I know his power, and I know his love, and I know his mercy, and I know it so well. I cannot continue in my flesh. When Christ stood up that day, and he declared to the masses, to come and drink, to believe in him, that they might have eternal life. That's what he's saying. He's saying, come and get to know me. Stop debating prophet, Christ, demon-possessed man. Come and know me. It is such an amazing thing that we live in a time and a place where we have the Bible. I've said this before, and it's so amazing. For much of church history, people packed churches because they couldn't get the word of God anywhere else. I mean, we know it wasn't until the 16th century that that the Gutenberg Press came out and they were actually able to print. So parchments were rare. And yet here we are in the land of plenty, numerous Bibles, multiple translation, commentaries galore. And I don't think we know Christ like many of the saints of old. We are without excuse. Christ has spoken. We have his word. He calls us to hear, to know, and to follow him. If he is to you just an historical figure, then your testimony cannot be what he desires it to be. And he desires it to be bold. You've all been in that situation at work where that dialogue comes up and you get strangely silent. And it might not even be about Christ in particular. It might be about, you know, how your coworker is cheating on his wife. Or how your coworker is skimming money off the top of the corporate roll. And you just turn away. Knowing Christ as the lover of your soul, knowing him as your friend and king. Your confidence, your refuge, your strength. 
you will, like Nicodemus, you'll stand up and you'll be that living testimony that the Lord desires you to be. You'll stand up for Christ. This is certainly a time and place when the church should be standing up for Jesus Christ. He is not looked upon well by the world. You can stand up for the Bible. Stand up for it. That means when you have your Bible at work and someone comes into your office or your cubicle, you don't hide it. Put your Bible out. Open your Bible up. Defend the Word. You will because you will know and love Him. And that will be the driving force in your life. You'll love Him. We do many bold things out of love. Agreed? Sometimes very stupid things. If you love Jesus Christ, then you can be like the soldiers who would not arrest him and Nicodemus who would stand up for him. You don't have to go on debating in your heart and mind who he is. I'm telling you now, out of my love for God and my love for you, it is an utterly foolish debate. He is God. He is king. And by his saving grace through faith, you can long to hear him speak. And in hearing him speak, you can follow him. You can desire to follow him. Because when Christ said, if you come and you drink, I'll give you the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will compel you to that end. Your flesh hates the word. Your flesh hates God. But if you know Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Do you desire to follow Christ more than anyone else? Do you desire to love him most? More than a spouse, more than a child, more than your job, do you, do you desire that? Do you desire to hear him speak? Do you desire to hear him cry out to you? Come, drink. You thirst. If you do, then come and drink. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Come and drink and know the grace, know the forgiveness, know the healing that comes to the, the thirsty, sin filled heart, the cleansing that comes, the ability to know and be loved by the creator of the universe. I have been praying this week that you'd stop debating Christ. Stop debating his word. Instead, come before him humbly in prayer and say, Lord, I want to hear you cry out to me and I want to respond rightly. I want to respond in love. This morning, by God's grace, you can know him. If you're hearing this and it's not making sense, you're hearing this and you are rebelling against it, this morning, you can know Christ. You say, well, what is today? Today is the day of salvation. The door is still open for all who repent and believe. They can be saved and from them, Rivers of living water can flow. What a glorious difference from being dead in our sins and wrecking our lives 
to being saved by grace and blessing others. What a glorious difference. I pray by God's grace you'll go back and you'll read this again. You'll hear the Pharisees and you'll say, I I do not want to respond like that. And you'll hear the officers and you'll hear Nicodemus and you'll hear Christ say to you, come and drink and drink, drink, drink. Amen? Let's pray. Father, on the last day of that great feast, you had your son stand up and cry out, not just to those people, but to the world. He is still crying out this day that if anyone thirsts, we are to come to him and we are to drink. Because you said, Father, that whoever believes in him, that out of our, heart, our own hearts will flow rivers of living water. These are truths so utterly profound. I pray by your grace and mercy through your Holy Spirit, you would help us understand. Help us to understand them, Father. And by your grace and mercy in that same Holy Spirit, enable us to live in accordance with it, to be filled with you, desiring you to come through all that we do. Let this church, Lord, have a bold testimony of the world. Let our lives be so radically different because of your grace that when our friends see us or our family sees us or our coworkers or our neighbors or the grocer at the store, when they see us, they know we belong to you. You must do this work. I pray we would submit to it, to your glory and honor. In Christ's holy name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>